This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is beginning a two-day trip to Papua New Guinea, the first by an Australian leader to the country in more than four years. He'll use his address to the PNG Parliament to call for a swift conclusion to the negotiations for a defence treaty between the two nations, adding that it'll build on a family-first approach to regional security. PNG correspondent Natalie Whiting has more. Australian flags have been hoisted across PNG's capital, Port Moresby, and billboards have gone up, plastered with the faces of Prime Ministers Anthony Albanese and James Morape. On the streets, people are following news of Mr Albanese's visit with interest. The focus for many ordinary Papua New Guineans is Australia's $600 million yearly aid package. It is OK for us to you know, relieve us from poverty, which is one good thing I see, but we want also aid to come in a form where the people is, is, have to feel that the money is here. He must help the development of our country and understand the challenges we're facing, the education of our children, our health and the effects of COVID-19. With China looming in the region, Australia has been quick to respond when asked for help, giving more than $1 billion in low-interest loans since 2019. While the aid program and the possibility of more loans will be canvassed, the focus will be on security. Anthony Albanese says discussions with Australia's nearest neighbour are critical. The economic relationship and economic development there is critical. Uh, National security will be uh, talking about our enhanced security arrangements and cooperation there, which is critical as our near neighbour to the north. This morning, Mr Albanese will use a speech to PNG's parliament to highlight the historical and close ties between the countries, and he'll call on PNG and Australia to work as equals with other Pacific nations to make the region stronger and safer and more secure. It will be an historic moment. And I will have the great honour of being the first foreign leader to ever address the Parliament of Papua New Guinea. PNG and Australia are negotiating a defence treaty and the two leaders will sign a document today, but it's unclear if it will be the final treaty or an interim agreement. PNG's Foreign Minister Justin Tachenko says the treaty will build on a long-standing defence relationship and he expressed surprise that one wasn't already in place. Now with the issues happening in our region and uh, looking at the security side of things, uh, this has now come to the table. While Australia has said that China is not the driving force behind the defence treaty, it has stepped up its security engagement in the Pacific since revelations of Beijing's security deal with Solomon Islands and its failed bid to get a broader regional agreement in place. The discussions often focus on regional implications, but PNG also faces serious domestic security challenges, which it will be looking for assistance with as part of any agreement. This is Natalie Whiting in Port Moresby for AM. The death of Australian Cardinal George Pell is being felt at the centre of the Catholic Church. Senior clergy in the Vatican have been wrestling with the shock death and reflecting upon his controversial legacy. But some expect the death of Cardinal Pell and former Pope Benedict to herald a new age for this church. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins reports from Vatican City. The death of Cardinal George Pell has rocked some here in the Vatican. 
The 81-year-old leaves behind a large but contentious legacy in the city-state. His local journalist, Nina Fabrizio. He was the kind of cardinal who felt himself as a prince. You, you know, cardinals are also called the prince prince of the church. Like many others who live and work in the Vatican, she was shocked by the news of the 81-year-old's death. She says he was an enigmatic presence and just days ago had started a vigorous discussion with her around Pope Francis's latest homily. German Cardinal Jared Ludwig Mueller invited us into his home that he shared for some time with the Australian cleric. One week before, we had a great dinner. We were together at the same table and we spoke all the time together and we are living now in the same house. When Cardinal Pell was accused of historic child sexual abuse, he was the third most senior leader in the Catholic Church. He took a leave of absence to fight the charges. After a first trial ended in a hung jury, a second found him guilty and he was sentenced to imprisonment. After about 13 months, the ruling was quashed by Australia's High Court. Cardinal Mueller is a fierce supporter of the Australian Catholic and believes the church has learnt the lessons from recent abuse scandals. Generally, it's all done what is possible um, for the victims and against those who are guilty and the prevention for the future to learn from the mistakes. Ms Fabrizio says the trial left the church bruised and vulnerable and believes more work is needed. There are some priests who still think that if something happens in a in a church in a parish it must be resolved inside the parish they don't understand that it's a crime pope francis has reflected on the cardinal's death paying tribute to his efforts to reform the vatican's finances while saying he persevered through tough times Vatican watchers say the church has lost two strong conservative figures with Emeritus Pope Benedict XVI's recent death and now Cardinal Pell, which could change the direction of the church for years to come. Here's Christopher Lamb from the Catholic publication The Tablet. Certainly I would say a figure who those who are not so sympathetic to Pope Francis were coalescing around to his supporters. He's almost already a saint. It's expected that George Pell will be memorialised at St Peter's Basilica in the coming days. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins. Some flood evacuees in the town of Derby in Western Australia's Kimberley region will be bussed back to their hometowns today as floodwaters subside. But others have little idea of when they can go home. Many communities can still only be accessed by air and even if people could go back, their homes are no longer safe. Erin Park filed this report from Derby. When the floodwaters started rising around Tyrone Han's home on the outskirts of Fitzroy Crossing, his first thought was for the safety of his four-year-old son, Jadeson. We got out of there by a boat before it hit it. So, yeah, I was watching it come up. It just climbing and climbing. I watched it all night till it went up to the second, um, second step. Then that's when I started getting worried. Just water everywhere. Couldn't get out of there. And what was the main thing that was sort of worrying you for the community there? People drowning, old people, and especially me and my son, Jadison, I didn't know how to get out of there. Couldn't swim, it was too strong. And it broke the um, new bridge, snapped it. Can't believe it. Yeah, i never seen that flood that big in Fitzroy before. It's actually, it was scary. Yeah, people were frightened to lose their lives. I was. I thought I was going to drown. Family members were able to reach them in a boat and take them to higher ground, where helicopters were plucking people to safety and delivering them 200 kilometres away in the town of Derby. 
They've been put up in a motel with other evacuees. Tyrone says his son is coping well, but thinking a lot about his grandmother. It's been all right. My little son been hassling me. He's all full of beans and life and that. Yeah, he's all right. He's back to normal. Keeps worrying about his nan. Keeps saying, where's nan? She's she back, back. She's back in Fitzroy here. Yeah. You must have been really worried for him, I guess. Yep, I was. He was the only one in my mind. I was thinking, can't swim with him. Yeah, it was just a shock. It came up too fast. Yeah, and it was too high. Because where we stayed, it's about, it's right up to here. Wow, that you're pointing about two and a half metres up. Yeah, it was under the brander, so we had to get out of there. So your house is on stilts? Yep. But the water still came up? Yep. Did the water end up going inside your house, do you know? Yep, I think it did, yep. It went inside. What was that like? How did you feel? We got out of there by a boat before it hit it. So, yeah. I was watching it come up. It just climbing and climbing. I watched it all night till it went up to the second um, second step. Then that's when I started to get worried. So you don't know if your house is going to be like, livable? Yeah, but I don't know, yeah, because it it's right next to the river, see. Here in Derby, people are grateful for a safe place to stay, regular food deliveries and visits by Aboriginal health workers. But for some, the tensions are building. Most of the evacuees are from dry communities. And since emergency liquor restrictions lifted two days ago, there have been several drunken fights. But for the most part, people are getting along. And yesterday, about two dozen evacuees from the Aboriginal community of Pandanus Park, 60 kilometres away, were able to go home. One of them is Cathy Ningala. So everybody's excited about going back home, so we've got buses that one big bus we're going home with and uh, there's a little bus people who who's got money today can do their shopping and then go home which is good she says unlike other communities in the kimberley pandanus park hasn't been badly damaged well we've got family members back there so we know it's not really bad the water hasn't come right up to our community just halfway. That leaves around 150 evacuees from more badly damaged communities still waiting here in Derby. Erin Park reporting. Ukraine's president is mocking Russia's claims it's taken over the eastern salt mining town of Solodar. In a video address, Volodymyr Zelensky says the fighting is continuing. Zaras. Now the terrorist state and its propagandists are trying to pretend that some part of our city of Solidar, which is almost completely destroyed by the occupiers, is some kind of Russian achievement. They're already presenting this to their society in a way that supports their mobilisation to give hope to those who support aggression. But the fighting continues. Our Donetsk forces are holding out. And we, without a break even for one day, do everything to strengthen the Ukrainian defence. The fight for Solidar is one of the bloodiest ground battles of Russia's invasion, and it comes as Moscow is again shaking up its military leadership. The ABC's global affairs editor, John Lyons, is in Kyiv. Kim, by many accounts, the battle for Solidar, it's horribly brutal. It's reminiscent um, of the sort of World War I battle uh, with trenches and mud. There's no confirmation yet as to whether Russia has taken the town. But what is clear is that Ukraine is in trouble in Solidar. They admit that. What's also clear is that the Wagner Group, 
Russia's group of ruthless mercenaries uh, is on the front line rather than the Russian army. Now, this suggests a growing realisation at the top of the Russian military command that their own soldiers are not up to the Ukrainian army and that the Wagner mercenaries might give Russia a better chance of victory. And John, while this is all going on, Russia has made another change to its military leadership for the Ukrainian campaign. What's happened? Well, uh, Vladimir Putin has sacked yet another commander for Ukraine, this time Sergei Sorovkin, after only three months in the job and has replaced him with General Valery Gerasimov. Now, the significance of this appears to be that it indicates a growing disarray in the Kremlin and in the Russian military command. Clearly, Vladimir Putin is now a man under growing pressure as it's becoming increasingly obvious that Russia is losing this war. That's Global Affairs editor John Lyons in Kyiv. An increasing number of Australian workers are turning to charities to help make ends meet due to the rising cost of living. The annual inflation rate has jumped to 7.3%, with the price of groceries, transport and housing all up. It's prompted one charity to ask for more government assistance, while a crossbench MP wants additional tax breaks. Political reporter Stephanie Boris has more. When Dylee walks the streets of Sydney's southwest, she has the same conversation with most people. When you ask how things are, they said, oh my gosh, you know, everything is so expensive. And that's the first thing that comes off their mouth, nothing else. The federal independent MP for Fowler says the pressure is across the board. Grocery bills, their electricity bills, their rent and petrol pricing. And she's noticed that many people who are nervous are double-income households. The people that actually approach me to talk to me are parents that are working either as a tradesperson or they're working in a factory or partners are professionals. And for the first time, some of those people are asking for help. Oz Harvest, which collects surplus food from shops and restaurants and delivers it to charities, has seen a dramatic increase in demand. Ronnie Khan is the founder. In the last four to six months, with the cost of living rise, we have seen a 50 to 70% increase in demand for our services. And it's a new demographic. That's what's so extraordinary. 50% of the people we see have got a job. She says they can't keep up with the request for help. We have a waiting list in every major city of over 100 charitable organisations that we cannot reach. To try and reduce that waiting list, Ronnie Khan is asking the federal government for more support. The need has gone up so exponentially, but the funding we receive has not gone up commensurate with that. So there has to be an uplift in government funding and we're preparing a submission, of course, for the next budget. Dai Lee says another way to help households is to reintroduce the low and middle income tax offsets. The temporary measure, which provided up to $1,500 back at tax time to people earning less than $126,000, ended last financial year. Obviously, that will help them, hopefully, in putting clothes on the kids and fueling up their cars and buying groceries for the families. The latest rise in the consumer price index increases the likelihood of a cash rate hike by the Reserve Bank next month, which would put more pressure on some households. David Bailey is CEO of Australian Finance Group, one of the country's largest mortgage broking groups. He says the impact of any rate rises will be staggered, as many people haven't come off fixed mortgages just yet. 
But our data says it's a transitory period over an 18-month period. 50% of all those fixed uh, fixed rate customs will come out in FY24. So it's been pushed back. So it doesn't imply a cliff's happening tomorrow or the next day. This It seems to be a, a more orderly transition across from customers. While some households still have time up their sleeves, others might not be as fortunate. Stephanie Boris reporting. Did you know that farmers who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars buying tractors and harvesters don't necessarily have the right to repair their own equipment or choose who does? In the US, one big manufacturer has agreed to ease some of those limits on machinery repairs, and the National Farmers Federation says that could put producers here at a disadvantage. So it's time for a change. Any guest reports? It's harvest time on David Jahinke's Victorian wheat farm. Yeah, I'm sitting in our John Deere with the chase bin attached to it, waiting for the header to finish another box full to do what we call catching the load, and then I'll take that back to a truck and the truck then will take it to our silos. But his expensive fleet of machinery has a problem. Only the last two days we've had an oil leak springing up in a main transmission block of a tractor that we have. He's handy with a spanner, but fixing it himself risks voiding the warranty. And also, the manufacturers place software locks on machinery. David Jahinke, who's also the vice president of the National Farmers Federation, says that limits troubleshooting to authorised repairers. Well, harvest being the most important period for us, um, besides sowing, is time critical. That time lost is time that we can never regain. And on the back end of that, if we have bad weather, we could actually lose crop. If we're not able to get um, our machinery operating in our peak periods, if we have to wait, is frustrating at best, but at worst, um, it is not as transparent as we'd like to see. The right to repair movement has seen laws passed in Europe making repair easier and cheaper, and several US states have considered doing the same. But in an effort to head that off, manufacturer John Deere has this week reached agreement with the US Peak Farmer Group to ease some restrictions on repairs. Griffith University's Professor Leanne Wiseman is sceptical. It's not everything. There, It's limited in some respects. And so it's not as if a farmer whose tractor breaks down on the field will be able to access everything that they need. Um, John Deere has certainly been forthcoming with some of the tools and some of the diagnostics. But in terms of um, providing everything that they need, it's certainly not going to go that far. In Australia, the Competition Watchdog and Productivity Commission have recommended laws forcing manufacturers to share information, enabling farmers or their chosen repairer to fix machinery. So really, this is an issue that we're taking back to government. And I know that the National Farmers Federation are also supportive. All of the hard work has been done. So really, we just need to pick those recommendations up and enact them for our Australian farmers. David Jahinke says if Australian farmers don't get repair rights soon, they'll suffer a competitive disadvantage against overseas counterparts. We're supportive of um, both a voluntary position to start with, but then ultimately a mandatory position if we go that way. So it does allow every farmer once again with confidence and competency to go and fix their machines. The ABC has contacted John Deere for comment. And a guest reporting. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.